This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Despite all the accommodations we hear about for people with disabilities, it can still be a humiliating experience when they travel. And as the holiday travel season's uh, happening, we thought we'd talk with Josue Cordova, who's an Air Force veteran and also National Vice President of the Paralyzed Veterans of America. And you have experienced this uh, these problems firsthand, haven't you? Absolutely. You know, sadly, uh, being in a wheelchair now 27 years since my injury, it's something through all the air travel I've had to face. Uh, I've dealt with many different situations like that. Now, the, the airlines, I mean, for example, veterans get priority boarding. Uh, people who need extra time boarding with disabilities go first. That's not helping? Those little things like that are always helpful, being able, especially with the mo- being a, a paraplegic. The problem is having really not very well-trained people, air, airport and airline employees transferring you, transferring you on and off the plane. When they're not trained properly, being dropped, being injured, being wounded, uh, having wounds, I should say, resulting in hospital, long hospital stays. And sadly, there's even been recorded uh, fatalities from, from such injuries because of improperly trained personnel taking you on and off the plane. And then talking about single-aisle planes with no accessible restroom at all on many of them. Right. I hadn't thought about the the bathroom situation as well. So, you know, I think any person who's hearing a story like this and, and the experience, it, what can happen, are going, why haven't there been any changes? What's the response from airlines? You're absolutely right. You know, for me, talking with you right now, being in the, in the Seattle area, I'm in the Chicagoland area, traveling over there is a four, four to four and a half hour flight. For me to travel to, to do a flight that way, I have to dehydrate myself 24 hours before I even take off simply to avoid the potential possibility of needing to use a restroom during that flight. I mean, those are things that I have to face. And sadly, many, many other people with mobility disabilities have to face every time they travel. I hadn't thought about that because the the restrooms have gotten so small, it's tough for people who don't have disabilities to use them sometimes. And and so there there is no – I mean, I would think at least the first-class bathroom would would be bigger. I have not been in one for a while, so I don't know. Uh, So there really is – physically, there's no place where where a disabled person can use the restroom. On a single aisle plane, I've yet to fly on a flight that had an accessible restroom. I'm not saying they're not out there. I've not – uh, experienced a, a flight on the single aisle plane with an accessible restroom. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Being able to travel and, and not use a restroom. I mean, I myself have some horror stories for, for that exact situation. Wow. That, I mean, it's inhumane is what it is to have somebody have to dehydrate in order to just fly. Um, so back to my question about the airline response, I imagine being part of the National Paralyzed Veterans of America organization, you'd have some sway. But what's their response to you? 35 years ago, the PVA was an incredible force in establishing the Air Carrier Act. With that act, it gave people with disabilities like myself and many other, you know, uh, millions of people across the country rights when it came to air travel. But you think about it, in 35 years, there have been no adjustments to that to that act. We have a representative on Capitol Hill uh, testifying before Congress with amendments for changes for that act. 
making a, an amendment to make accessible tr- air travel for everyone, regardless of disabilities, when it comes to accessible restrooms, when it comes to the care of our wheelchairs on and off the plane, and even potentially to have our wheelchair on the plane if we so require it. Are there other things you're asking for outside of the uh, the area of travel that, that still needs to be done? Well, definitely. There are many things that need to be adjusted, but some of the big things are, as I mentioned, accessible restrooms for single-aisle planes, but also the stowage and, and, and the care of our wheelchairs that go under underneath the plane, having it transported and receiving it back. In 2019 through 2020, we have a statistic of over 14,000 reports of destroyed, of damaged, of misplaced and lost wheelchairs for passengers during air travel. So in terms of the other areas of society, bathrooms, I don't know, crosswalks, uh, office buildings, we've, we've had many years now of a requirement that employers accommodate people with disabilities. Is that working? With the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, that's something that's really is opened up the, the, uh, the opportunity for people in wheelchairs and other accessible required equipment to be able to participate, to be able to work, be able to enjoy just daily things uh, around our communities. The airlines do not have to comply with that because the Air Carrier Act that was put in place uh, so many years before they are not required to live up to the ADA standard. And that's what this new amendment, the Air Carrier Act amendment, what we're trying to put in place, we're trying to update that to live up to kind of what the ADA is for everyday living in our cities and in our towns. We've heard a lot about uh, the term allyship in the last few years when it comes to supporting women, when it comes to supporting uh, black men and women and kids uh, that that white people can step in and say, hey, stop, that's racist, that it, that it's on the allies to try and put this stuff to rest. Would you recommend the same type of approach for individuals who hear this interview and go, gosh, well, now I should ask somebody who's in a wheelchair at the airport. Hey, are you OK? Are you being taken care of? Is there anything I can do? Is that the approach? What we have at the Paralyzed Veterans of America, if people sign on to our website, they go to pva.org slash air travel. We have a petition. And what we're looking to do is get as many people as we can to get on there, put your name down, sign up, and, and join us in this fight to make our voice even stronger to where we're sitting there saying, we're going to knock down these barriers and we're going to make air travel accessible for everyone. We're going to make sure everyone has the same liberties as whether you're disabled or you're able-bodied. We want that change now. And I think we need to come together and let people know that, hey, we need to make sure that everyone is accountable within the airline industry or whatever it may be. We need these laws and these acts put in place so that we're making a difference and everyone has the ability and freedom to be able to enjoy air travel. So no approaching at the airport or asking if anybody needs help. Is is that not the way to assist those with disabilities? Everybody is very unique. And when it comes to asking questions like that, uh, some people are, are very welcome to it and other people are not. So that really, as, as in all things, as, as in assisting somebody, uh, even opening the door for them, people have different per- perspectives of how they want to be accommodated or not be accommodated. You know, Josue, we're here in uh, Boeing country. 
And so it's possible that some of the people who design the restrooms and the seating patterns uh, might be listening. Do you have a message for them? Reach out and see what you can do. Check, take in, and take the time and see the changes that need to be in place. Whether within all the airline industries, we know that the technology is out there. I mean, really, you think about it. We talk about sending people to Mars. We're doing incredible things in, in, in our world. We just want everyone to come together and to be accountable and make accessible air travel for everyone. Josue Cordova, U.S. Air Force veteran and National Vice President of Paralyzed Veterans of America. Josue, thanks very much. Thank you, sir. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us on Fridays for All Over the Map, his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week we're talking about nicknames for northwest cities and neighborhoods and something called the Frisco Effect. Yeah, you know, the local nicknames I'm talking about are something like T-Town for Tacoma or Soto for the old industrial area or Cap Hill for Capitol Hill. We'll come back to one of those in a moment. Now, until I read a blog post last week, I had no idea that Frisco as a nickname for San Francisco was such a divisive thing. Um... This blog post is written by the founder and CEO of a naming agency in San Francisco, a guy named Jay Jurisich, with a company called Zinzin. It cited all kinds of sources going back decades to say, essentially, locals cringe when anyone besides a tourist uses the name Frisco for San Francisco. Though it also has had a kind of weird evolution, I talked to Jay. He said that no San Francisco resident better represents the struggle to come to grips with Frisco than famous newspaper columnist and author Herb Kane. He's Mr. San Francisco. In the 40s, Kane wrote about how it felt good to say Frisco. In the 50s, he wrote a book called Don't Call It Frisco. Then in 1993, Jay Jurisich says Herb Kane summed it all up in one of his columns. Adolescence is believing that Frisco is a racy nickname for a city. Senility is automatically saying don't call it Frisco. Maturity is figuring out that it doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> Fortunately, maturity is not an issue here. Um, now, regardless of Herb Kane, I think one out-of-towner still gets away with saying Frisco 55 years after he first uttered it. I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Otis Redding from 1967, but what about the, R- the Rivieras in 1964? Well, the girls are frisking old Frisco. Doesn't quite age doesn't, as well. Doesn't stand <laughs> yeah. quite as well. You're really hearkening us back to our oldies 97.3 KBSG that's right. days. The ghosts of KBSG I'm are everywhere it. around here. Now, there's no Frisco equivalent for Seattle, but the one local nickname whose evolution I've witnessed firsthand is Soto. That name dates to 1991 when plans were announced to convert the old Sears building, that's currently home to Starbucks, to an office complex called Soto Center. Anyone here guess what Soto stands for? South of the Dome. South downtown. You're right, Dave. And oh. I didn't I didn't remember that. I thought it was south of downtown, but oh. I, you're absolutely right. Good for you. Um, wow. It stood for south of the dome for the old kingdom. And all through the 90s, I remember hearing people say Soto, a lot of people moving to town that, and I felt embarrassed or sort of um, sorry for them. But I think that place, which was used to, we called it the industrial area when I was a kid, I think that Soto is here to stay, and we're past the cringe part. We're past everything. Soto is, is firmly dialed into yeah. everything. Aren't there a lot of major metros with a Soto, though? I mean, I feel well, like that's supply not... on Soho, which is the uh, original south of New of York. Street. South of Houston yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then London has a neighborhood called Soho, which I don't know what the London is, if, if it's the same thing in London. But anyway, we don't have time to get into abbreviations like T-Town for Tacoma or Capitol, Cap Hill for Cap Hill or Uptown for Lower Queen Anne or West Edge for First Avenue and Second Nobody Avenue. Nobody calls it that. Yeah. But if you have thoughts, send me uh, on the text line, 888-973-5476. Final word from Jay Jurisich, who, by the way, says he hates the name San Fran, but he likes the initials SF. Frisco is dead. Long live Frisco. That would, that would be my tagline. That's perfect. 
You know, one last thing. Frisco Freeze at restaurant in Tacoma. It's a uh-huh. famous burger joint from 1950. It's named because Leo Lassen was calling a baseball game one night between the Seattle Rainiers and the San Francisco Seals, and he talked about Frisco. So the founder of that restaurant called it Frisco Freeze. Spelled it with a K. So. <laughs> okay. That's the Frisco I, effect. Oh, something I did Frisco. not know, yeah. <laughs> but I know now. I'll see you in Soto, yeah, okay? Maybe I'll win Final Jeopardy with that. Not in someday. T-Town. Yeah. <laughs> All of Felix's features are at MyNorthwest.com. 648 Seattle's Morning News. Let's take you inside the ballot counting process now, because in addition to being a retired National Weather Service meteorologist and a regular Tyrone's Radio Traffic contributor, Ted Beener is a seasonal Snohomish County elections office worker, and you personally helped to prepare 17,400 ballots up in Snohomish County. Now, when you say you prepped the ballots, what does that mean? I am in the extraction area. So after the envelopes have come in, either by mail or by uh, drop boxes, uh, they get scanned, and then they go through the signature verification process. By the time those have cleared the deck, then they reach the group of us. About 30, 35 of us were, were there this particular time for this election cycle. And we literally take the... Uh, ballots out of the envelopes and remove the secrecy sleeve. We fold them out so we can see them and inspect the ballots to make sure there aren't any uh, mistakes, tears, anything along those lines. The most frequent one is that the seams on the when the folding area is, they tend to tear. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so we have to tape them together. Uh, or if they're seriously damaged, we put them in what's called the red envelope. So they go through the scanners uh, for the tabulation process individually to make sure they don't jam up the machines. How many would you say you had to go get help with or had to toss aside for you know a challenge? Well, we get these in batches of 200. We check them out like a library book. Mm. Uh, so we're responsible for them during the time we have them. Uh, I would say maybe one or two out of maybe every thousand. Oh, that's uh, not very many. No, it's not very yeah. many. And most of the tears are just a couple of inches. But the ones that tear almost all the way across, those are the ones that we just don't trust will go through the system very well. So we put them in the red envelope. What's now, what, the, what happens if you have a, you notice that for example, one of the bubbles isn't entirely colored in. Oh, there are voting rules on that. You can go to the Secretary of, of uh, State's uh, uh, website and see all that. There's a booklet about a quarter but inch. I mean, do you, do yeah. you color them in? No, 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 no. So you no. can't touch the ballot no, in any way no. once it's out? Yeah. We don't. The only, by the way, the only pens we have, they're red. So we don't, you know, we all fill in our ballots with blue or black uh, uh, ink. Uh, All we have anywhere in the area is red pens. So every ballot, I'm sorry, but every ballot is checked on them before it gets into the machine. You don't just feed them straight into the machine. No, correct. Yeah, we we inspect them to make sure that there aren't any issues. Every once in a while, somebody will use a Sharpie, and that bleeds through the paper. But this particular way they have it formatted, it never has an impact on the other side of the ballot. It doesn't hit any of the the bubbles on the other side. I see. I'm curious what the mood is like with all 35 of you sitting around the table. Are you? Is it jovial and friendly? Is it professional? Is it like you're watching each other to make sure no funny business is going on? <laughs> like especially in today's era where nobody well, seems to trust any fellow American. I, I just I'm curious what it's like to sit around with 35 other people doing their civic duty i am going to describe it like the seahawks of the mariners it ah. is a team effort oh, I like we that. are in really good moods and helping each other uh supporting each other there are observers this year i was really proud of this we had 
uh, class students coming in and watching democracy in action. Cool. I thought that was really cool, and I had not seen that in previous years. I started doing this in 2020 with the presidential election, so I was really glad to see that. I love that. Answer the uh, argument that we can send a man to the moon, but it takes two, three weeks sometimes to count ballots. Well, it's a process. Like I said, it has to go through. Once it arrives in the elections office, they get scanned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you have your signature on the exterior of the envelope. The barcode is for you and you only. Mm-hmm. I had my first ever double ballot in one envelope. Uh-uh. That's a no-no. What, no, did no. what did you do? What did you do? So there are two ballots in the same envelope? Yeah, probably Was it like a married a, couple? Exactly. That, yeah, a yeah. husband, wife. Oh, let's save a little bit of postage. Well, that's a no-no. Well, the postage is free. I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. So what did you do? What did you do? Well... I alerted the authorities, and they came over, and uh, that particular envelope gets set aside and will be dealt with by other personnel, not myself. Mm-hmm. I imagine they reach out to those voters and that say, hey, we've got to make sure this is yep. legit, not your deceased yep. husband or wife. Yeah. yeah, and one of the things they did check was, are the ballots the same? In other words, have they voted for the exact same thing all the way through? And mm-hmm. in this particular case, the first one I've ever had, they did. Okay, so if somebody was if there was organized fraud, like somebody was duplicating ballots and just, you know, voting for one person, uh, how would that be detected? Uh, say that again, Dave. If there was actual fraud, somebody was duplicating ballots on a machine, you know, printing uh, up their own ballots, sending them in under phony signatures, how would that be detected? Well, the signature verification is the big key right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will, you know, there's you know the claim that well, I voted for my dead aunt who died, you know three weeks ago or whatever the case may be, their signature is not going to match. It's just not going to happen. And for those that don't match, and in the case of Snohomish County, it was less than 1%. It doesn't happen very often. They have individuals who follow up with those voters. And more often than not, it is, uh, and, and Dave, you and I talked about this off air, when we age, our signatures evolve to some degree. And that's where the issues usually arise. And uh, Dave, you mentioned you had a neighbor that, yeah. that had to go through that had process. had to go down to King County, and he had to sign a thing three times and said, okay, yes, it's you. And then they counted his ballot. Right, but they exactly. weren't going to count it unless he showed up in person to you know, re-sign. That's I'm wondering correct. how the younger generation is going to deal with mail-in ballots with signatures, because handwriting isn't really taught anymore. <laughs> and so it's usually just scribbles. And especially with you know the way you sign off on things on an iPad now, we kind of just go, blah, whatever. You know, the signature could be different every time you sign you, it. You bring up a good point that I've talked to my grandkids about because uh, uh, they, you know, I'm trying to teach them how to do a little cursive. No way. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they <laughs> won't do it. And you're going to run into it yourself here yeah. in the near future. So, okay. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Meet the father-son team who defied the odds by completing a full Ironman race. We told this story when they initially began their journey. CBS's David Begno has the update. Well before sunrise, Jeff Agar's already 20 miles into his day. At 59 years old, he is training for another triathlon. It is a goal fueled by his greatest motivation who's on his own ride up the stairs. This is Jeff's 28-year-old son, Johnny. Oh, you're a good little boy. When he was just three weeks old, Johnny was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Johnny, there you go, little boy. It is a muscle disorder that makes it challenging for Johnny to walk and talk. Look at you. (laughs) There you go. Jeff and his wife, Becky, were devastated. I remember asking him one day, I said, you know, 
what if he can't play catch with you? You know, what, what does that mean to you? And he said, you know, I just love him. It doesn't matter what he can and can't do. You know, it was at that point I thought, gosh, I got the right guy. Uh, the right guy. Mom's cooking when we get home. <laughs> Who pushes through countless long runs. Early morning swims in Michigan's frigid lakes and bike rides four hours or more around the neighborhood. I believe I can fly. <laughs> Triathlon's an individual sport that Jeff is taking on for two people, totaling 400 pounds with their equipment. When he swims, he pulls John. When he bikes, he hauls him. Good morning. Thank you for being out here. And when he runs, he pushes him. How do you feel about what your dad does for you? Because really, it's all for you. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's a tremendous blessing that, you know, I'm able to express my desires through him and he understands that. I, I get emotional not because I pity you. I get emotional because it just gives me a feeling of inspiration to listen to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, to be able to inspire someone else, it gives my challenges purpose, I think. It gives my challenges purpose. Well, that's powerful. We certainly have learned a lot from that duo. And now here he is from the G and Ursula show, dressed for the Academy Awards. My goodness, I tell you what. Gee, Scott, I've never seen so many sparkles and spangles on a talk show host before. What well, is it? Where do you get that? You know what? It's interesting you say you've never seen that on a talk show host before. And I was going to tell you, have you seen what has happened in the last 85 years here at Cairo Radio? But it, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, shout out to the upper management. By the way, it's interesting that we're talking about this. It's eight years now for me. At Bonneville, right this here, Cairo. The longest this you've been is, with the company. What? First of all, it's my first job. Oh. <laughs> it's my first Whatever. real job. You've had jobs. You were a self-made man with your car washing business and all the sales you do. Yeah, but those weren't guaranteed checks. And you're an auctioneer, self-made. Yeah, you know, I got lucky. You got I, it I got all going. But congratulations Thank on the eight, you. eight years. Eight years. You know you what I'm are saying? A highlight I never, and a true sparkle to this. I never radio thought. Station. I never thought I wouldn't uh, would would make it this far. But I will say. I've asked Dave in the past, Dave Ross, I've asked you, so Dave, what's some advice you get me would give me? And you told me, and one day you told me, would you say, I don't know, you like Dave something like uh Come to work, keep your head down, and, go home. And sometimes you just gotta keep your focus, stay straight. I don't know. I yeah. think I would. I usually say just show up for work every day. Yeah. That's yeah. a good start. I and try not to let outside sources bother yeah. you. Yeah. Let's talk about Russell Wilson. No, man. I watched the news conference. Let's let's just play a clip here first. Okay. This is after the uh, the uh, he lost a game apparently. A lot of football left. A lot of football left. You know, and uh, we we got we got to play uh, at the highest level, um, and we got to play at the highest level just uh, you know each day in practice. And what that does that translates to the game, and um, we got a great rivalry game, obviously, an um, AFC West matchup uh, against the Raiders. There's a lot of history there. Um, and so we got to make sure that we we uh, step up to the plate and put, play our best football. Kelly, you said you you're, you were worried about him. I mean, I watched it and it sounded like you know the usual sports talking after nah. a game. I mean, but. he's such a positive dude and always tries to keep it positive. And and so you feel bad at a certain point how much 
uh, beating up he's getting. But you hear something like that, which, by the way, that quote was a nothing burger. What did he actually say? Besides, yeah. there was a football but game and typical, we just got to show up. In most sports interviews. But his tweets are getting a little more desperate. Usually they're quick, snappy, and he's writing a lot now. Yeah. I, I feel bad for Russell right now is because... Um, I think that he is at an organization, and I think Russell is finding out, and I'm being serious. I'm not even being sarcastic. I think Russell is really finding out, like, oh, not every place is like Seattle. Not every place is like the Seahawks. Now, I'm sure that there are people listening say, of course, G, you're going to really say all the great things about the Seahawks. We know that you love them so much and they can do no wrong. No, that's not true. The Seahawks are, you know, they, they're ran by human beings. They make mistakes. But the truth, one of the things that they do very well is to protect their players. Mm -hmm. And what's happening over in Denver right now is the head coach, the organization, they aren't protecting their players. Out there in Denver right now, the sports radio, he is the joke now. Mm -hmm. They're all coming out, telling stories from sources inside of the building. Now, did Russell make mistakes when he was here in Seattle? He yeah. sure did. Yeah. How many times did players and sports media come out and talk about those things? Not much, right? Even Sherman. Like, he didn't start talking until Russell was out. Right. So much so that the majority of people thought, hmm, Richard Sherman and Doug Baldwin and those guys are so opinionated. So almost like they were kind of like the bad guy, which, okay. Cool. No problem. Because at the end of the day, it's all about for the betterment of the team. What did that equal for Seattle? Well, in Seattle, that equaled, I'd say, it's pretty successful run yeah. over the last 10 years. And what you're seeing in Denver, this isn't year three, year four. This is week 10. This is week 10. You got, they asked the head coach, they asked him, they said, hey, we heard that some from time to time, Russell Wilson is calling audibles, calling out of the plays and using Seahawk audibles. And sometimes the receivers don't know the call. That could have been a very easy time for the head coach to say, no, that's not true. Mm -hmm. How does he answer? Well, he's out there calling some new plays. And yeah, he's called some old plays. But, huh, this is all news to me. Uh, What? Because that's Pete's rule. Like, number one. Protect the team. No, he has like three rules. But number one is you protect the team. Yes. And they did. And we're seeing what happens when you don't protect your team. And I'll I'll give another angle to this. And you have been in management. And there may be somebody listening right now. You are in management or you're a boss or something like that. Sometimes, sometimes when you're the boss and you have maybe some of your employees not doing a good job, you might say, hmm, well, this employee is not doing a good job. However, I got to save my butt, too. Mm-hmm. Right. I think right now, Nathaniel Hackett, their head coach, because this is year one, because things are so bad, I think deep down, instead of the protect the team mantra, I think he's more of the man, I got to protect my butt. I need to survive (laughs) this. So let me kind of, yeah, I'm going to kind of think I'm protecting the team, but I'm going to kind of throw my quarterback under the bus again. But he did, the general man, did he choose Russell or was it the GM? I mean, I thought it was the head coach wasn't necessarily the decision maker, right? I I can't answer that. Mm. But it's interesting that you're saying that. Mm -hmm. 
the Denver Broncos chose Russell. Yeah. And when the Seattle Seahawks do things where they win or they lose, they don't say, well, John Snyder did this or, or Pete Carroll wanted to do that. Well, Jody Allen wanted to. No. You do it all as an organization. You win together. You lose together. You protect the team together. And right now, the Denver Broncos are not protecting the team. And they signed him for five years, right? Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. So right now in the world, we got Russell Wilson and the money that he got. And you got Elon Musk and the money he paid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, man, folk, it's just going down around here. And Dave Ross, I just got to say, you're the godfather and the legend. I always get that opportunity to say that because you don't like compliments. Okay. My gosh, there's a skull and crossbones on your chest. Oh, I know. I'm going to put a picture on Twitter of this outfit. <laughs> she and Ursula. Would you, would, you wear, would you wear all this? I would never wear all that. No. I can't. I can't Can you pull. please take him shopping? I want, is, you, I want a video. This is a new yet. shirt. I got this yesterday at REI. Nice Nobody's mentioned it Wait, this morning. Sorry. Well, anyway. Was <laughs> there any bro- were there any brothers inside REI? Oh, it was packed with them, G. <laughs> <laughs> Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Seahawks are off this week, but the Mariners are making some moves, and that means there are new names to learn. Let's go to Mike Salk from Seattle Sports uh, 710. So who did they lose and who did they pick up? Well, uh, the big name they picked up is a guy named Teoscar Hernandez, which is a truly wonderful name. Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, He comes from Toronto. He's a uh, power-hitting outfielder on the last year of his deal. So uh, as of now, it's just for one season. We'll see what happens. About 30 years old. I think he'll play this coming season at 31. And he is what they needed. He is a guy who drives in runs. And if you watch the Mariners last year, they were really good at getting on base. They did hit a bunch of home runs, but they were not great at driving the guys in who were on base. That was sort of the one big weakness on the team over the course of the season. And that's what Hernandez does. He hits the ball as hard as anybody in the league. Uh, and that's sort of one of the new stats that's really being looked at carefully, right, is how hard the ball exits the bat. Hmm. And the thinking being, and, and when you run the numbers, the harder the exit velocity, the better chance it has of being a hit. And so a lot of a lot of the stats in baseball these days that, that the front offices are using are all about trying to take chance out of it, right? Whether or not a ball is a hit is dependent on a lot of things, right? Once the ball leaves the bat, the hitter is essentially helpless. And the defense plays a role, and the park plays a role, and the weather plays a role, right? Everything else would then start to play a role. And so what they like about exit velocity is that it starts to eliminate some of the luck of where the ball goes and just how hard did you hit it? Hmm. And as it turns out, the guys who hit the ball the hardest are actually the best so players So they're in not baseball. actually aiming for certain parts of the field. Most uh, of the time, not. You know, I think there was a time, I always you know, thought, yeah. 50, well, 75 well, years ago. the play guys always say, oh, he, he, he's going to aim it to the gap, uh, you know, this and that. And, and the shift is on, so he's going to aim it where they're not. They can do that sometimes. They, they, can, they can go the other way a little bit. I mean, they, there yeah, are different the types other way, of swings. I hear that like, like there was yes. a choice. But I've always believed that it is actually more a roll of the dice. Because when you're talking about what well, it takes a quarter of a second for the ball to get there, right? And they're they're swinging at a hundred miles an hour. 
You can't plan that. They can't, Are they, they swinging can't... at 100 miles an hour? Well, the that... ball's coming at 100 miles oh, an hour, yeah, and it will yeah. often exit the bat at over 100 miles an okay, hour. Okay, I was going to ask the measurement for which the yeah, velocity the, the, is measured. The line of demarcation is about 95 miles an hour. Once you hit the ball over 95, then it starts to really have a good chance of being a hit. Under 95, the chances are much lower that the ball will be hit. See, and, who knew? I, right. Yeah, I didn't. Well, that makes the game a whole lot more interesting to me. Yeah, baseball's <laughs> fascinating, yeah. and, and it keeps getting more fascinating. Fascinating every year as they learn and figure out more and more about the game. I always thought they were statisticizing it to, is that a word, statisticizing it, to death, right? Where it was just like, can we just play a game here? And they just kept analyzing. But that's interesting. I mean, I would say both things are true, yeah. right? They are. There are too many stats at times, and they've taken some of the fun out of the game because as they figure out the perfect way to play yeah. and get closer and closer to quote-unquote perfection, the teams all start to mirror each other more and more, and there's a, a level of that that is sort of boring. On the other hand, it's cool seeing all of the things that they figure out about the game and, and trying to get to that quote-unquote perfect way of playing baseball. So back to the Mariners. Teoscar Hernandez hits the ball about as hard as anybody in baseball. It's exactly what this team needed. Absolutely. What's the other trade now? It's a sad one, though. Well, first of all, the other side of that trade is uh, Eric Swanson, who was a reliever, and a young pitcher uh, who was not pitching the big leagues named Adam Mako. It's a bummer to lose Swanson. He had a really good year last year, but they had a lot of relief pitchers. Relief pitchers are sort of expendable. It's a good deal. Mm. On the other side, uh, yeah, the other trade, Kyle Lewis, who was the rookie of the year here a few years ago, uh, was dealt to Arizona yesterday in exchange for a guy uh, named, I think it's Connor Hummel, who, uh, you know, may be something or may not. He's 27 years old, just finally made the big leagues, which is very late. Um, but he's had kind of a late resurgence to his career. He can catch a little bit, play the outfield. Um, but the story, you're right, is Kyle Lewis. How do I talk about Kyle Lewis? Mm. God, he had so much promise, right? Yeah. Wins the rookie of the year a couple of years ago in the short COVID season. And unfortunately, his career just has been completely destroyed by injuries. Mm. It started when he was in the minor leagues. He had massive knee surgery. He had another one once he reached the big leagues. He's really just, unfortunately, every time he gets healthy, he gets hurt. Mm. Compound that with the fact that he's just gotten bigger. And I'm not saying he's fat. I'm just saying he's gotten enormous. And it's making it harder and harder for him to play the outfield. I think he only played 12 games in the outfield last year. And unfortunately... Young DH, who has not had that much consistent success in the majors, really just isn't worth that much. And it's, yeah, go ahead. A late growth spurt? Is that what it was? No, I don't mean he got taller. I just mean he got bigger. Bulkier. Right? He, he got, got bulkier. That, and when you have knee replacements, you probably shouldn't get bulkier. He got bulkier and he got, you know, sometimes guys just fill out at that age, right? In their, in their early 20s, they turn into men. <laughs> and that seems to have happened to him in a big way. And if he's a football player, that's great. And everybody loves it. And as a baseball player, in his case, it's kind of limited him from playing the outfield. And because he's not hit consistently, unfortunately, his value is a 27-year-old lottery ticket mm -hmm. named Connor Hummel. So, bottom line, this makes it them a, a better team next season? Well, certainly the, the Hernandez move does. And I don't think they're done. They still need to figure out what they want to do at second base. They still would like to bring in another outfielder. I mean, they, they're not finished. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. The winter meetings aren't until December. So there, there's a long way to go in, in this offseason, and we'll wait and find out. There's a, uh, a Japanese pitcher that is a possibility who throws 100 miles an hour with a nasty sinker or a nasty splitter. Uh, there's a Japanese outfielder that people like. 
like. There's the free agent shortstops that people like. So buckle up. It's just the beginning. It's fair to say that unlike last season, they go into this season with high expectations. Yeah, and I think they did to a point last year, right? It was sort of go time for them last year. I think this year is the good to great year, right? Like how do you go from being good to being great? You certainly, you know, that's the the famous book, right, about companies. How do you take them from good to great? Like Twitter, right? They've now gone <laughs> from good to great. Whatever Twitter did, do the opposite. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, people always say you just need to spend money and the Mariners will win. Well, tell that to, to Twitter. they got a, the richest man in the world and sort of gone the other direction. But yeah. this is the year you got to go from good to great. They were very good last year. They gave the Astros all they could handle in the postseason. But what can you do to put yourself over the top? And the Hernandez move is designed to do exactly that. At Twitter, it's the employees who've achieved the exit velocity yes. of 110 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Mike Sock from Seattle Sports 710. Thank you, Mike. Of course. You can ring my bell. Rachel Bell. Rachel Bell. She's Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here is Rachel Bell who's going to step in to Tom Tangney's shoes. Remember Tom? Oh, yeah. And uh, review a movie called The Menu. That's right. I figure for my last day on Cairo Radio, I will impersonate a former co-worker. Welcome to Hawthorne. The Menu opens in theaters today, starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt, and an ensemble cast that includes Judith Light and John Leguizamo. It is a culinary thriller, if I may invent a new genre. Twelve wealthy folks pay $1,200 each for an exclusive dining experience on a secluded island prepared by a revered chef. But the dinner doesn't go as planned. It's okay. No, we're going to die today. Yes, we are. I had the chance to interview one of the film stars, Amy Carrero. I just watched the film last night. I loved it. I'm already texting everybody like, you can't wait for this to come out. It's so good. (laughs) Thank you. The menu, very simply put, is about a dinner party gone horribly wrong. Have you yourself had any kitchen disasters or a meal that didn't go as planned? Oh, constantly. So my best girlfriends and I have this tradition. We do a supper club every Monday. We've done it for the last 10 years. None of us really were cooks at all to begin with. Now I've gotten pretty good, but one of the first disasters, one of the first times I hosted, I wanted to make these like sloppy joes. My first mistake was I made turkey sloppy joes. My second mistake was not reading the recipe. I think it called for maybe one teaspoon of brown sugar and I added like three tablespoons. So it was a sweet Mm. Uh, turkey sloppy joe, which is just about the most disgusting thing you've ever put in your mouth. <laughs> I also like this idea of I'm going to have a dinner party. I'm an adult woman and I'm going to serve right. camp sloppy food. <laughs> I have interviewed a few food stylists and caterers over the years who have been hired to create the food on sets like this one, where food is a prominent part of a film. Yes. I love learning the behind the scenes secrets. Uh, like, for example, in The Good Place, the frozen yogurt that all the characters were eating was actually mashed potatoes. So it would keep Right, shape, right, yeah. Yep. So in the menu, the guests are served this multi-course molecular gastronomy feast with, you know, foams and gels. Can you share any behind <laughs> the scenes secrets of, you know, what this food was? Yes, absolutely. One of the first meals that's served in the menu is like a scallop on like this beautiful sea kelp and all this stuff. But we actually had potatoes. So it wasn't a scallop. It just was a potato that was like constantly being brushed with like seawater in order to make it kind of look wet for the breadless bread plate there were like these little dips 
The one I was most curious about was like this black dip, which I have no idea what it's supposed to be. Like maybe some sort of like mole, or, but it actually was just Crisco with black uh, food coloring. So they <laughs> were like, please don't eat this. It's disgusting. Hear more with Amy Carrero and lots more about the film on a future episode of Your Last Meal out in two weeks. And the menu is in theaters now. Wow. So when they eat that potato scallop, and I'm using air quotes here mm-hmm. for, for those listening, do they actually have to act like it's good or is it just for the shot? Is it just for the camera? Yeah, they're shown eating it and reacting okay. to it. And part of this film is it's a satire basically making fun of people who are super pretentious in the food world. So you see different characters reacting in different ways to this food. And yeah, one person is like a food critic. Some it's like three young guys who are startup millionaires. It is a very, very good film. So tell us about what your next step is going to be. My last meal, my next meal. Uh, Yeah. So like I mentioned, today is my last day at Cairo and I've done news for 20 years. I've worked here 15 years total, 12 this last round. And I am going off to do my podcast, Your Last Meal on my own full time. I have some other things that I'm planning to do as well. Some freelance projects, getting more into making a business out of the outdoor cooking that I love, like campfire cooking and trail snacks and van cooking and all that. So stay tuned. Uh, And I do have a newsletter. So if you want to keep in touch and follow along in the future, I hope to do events and announce new ventures and give people who are on the newsletter a first look at some fun things coming up. So if you go to my Instagram or my Facebook page, Hello Rachel Bell, you can find a link to that Substack newsletter. How about a product line of foods that are not just delicious, but sustainable and healthy at the same (gasps) time? time. Ugh, products are so hard. I do. I mean, when you go backpacking, you end up coming back with all this plastic because, you know, you, you eat that instant kind of food and that's yeah. always bothered me. So maybe I can get someone else to come up with that product that like a disintegratable bag once the weekend well, is edible over. Edible packaging. Yeah. Ed- <gasps> like they wrap that Italian candy, that nougat candy and that little thing that looks like paper, but it melts in your mouth. Oh, it's yeah. like, or like the Botan rice candy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Remember those? You know those in the grocery? Yeah. I love those so much. Yeah. I think you should do like an adventure company where somebody hires you to teach them how to chop their wood, yep. go into the hiking. Chop their wood. Edible. What an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's right. You still owe Dave. (laughs) I know. Everybody, I told Dave I was going to come over and chop his wood, and then I canceled. Rachel Bell, bon voyage. Goodbye. I love you guys. We love you. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast, and you'll never miss the show. 